Well, we were back in John's Gospel last week. Uh, it was our first Sunday celebration. This was an amazing day. How about that food that they cooked last week? Did it, guys, are, is that amazing? Praise God for Judah and Lita and the work they do to serve us with that meal. So we're back in uh, we're back in the Gospel of John. Two weeks ago, Joel Zakahi, our pastoral intern, preached and he showed us walked us through the first part of this story about the double miracle of how Jesus brought this man not only out of physical blindness, but also out of spiritual blindness. And today we're going to see the aftermath of that event as the religious elite does just about everything they can in their power to deny the obvious conclusion of what's just happened. That uh, Jesus is in fact who he says he is. And that's still going on today. There's a whole establishment that is doing everything in their power to deny the fact of the obvious conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is plan A and there is no plan B. And so we're going to look at the aftermath of that tonight, so we'll have much to learn from this as well. Uh, Can I ask you to please stand one last time as we listen intently together to God's word. Again, we believe that God is speaking to us through his word, as it's read and as it's faithfully preached. So this is God's inerrant word. Let's listen intently to it together. From John chapter 9, starting at verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, We know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. 
And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We live in changing times, Lord, and so much good is coming from it as you you purify your church, as you strengthen us, as you reaffirm your goodness to us. But there's also so much uncertainty as we wonder which way culture is going to go and what it's going to mean for us, Lord. So help us to keep our eyes on you and to help us to remember that your promises are absolutely certain. Help us to see, Lord. Give us minds to see and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, anybody who wants to, um, wants to undermine the integrity of John's gospel as some patchwork of editorial nonsense, this, this story right here puts the nail in the coffin. This is a work of literary beauty and genius um, beyond the ability of a poor Galilean fisherman um, as we read through it. It's a dramatic literary masterpiece showing us in this dramatic story the truth that Jesus is the source of the water of life and that Jesus is the light of the world. Everything that he said in the, in the, in the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7. Jesus said those things to the Jews, and in this chapter, John is playing those things out in dramatic form in a real historical story to show us that these things are true. If you remember, the pool of Siloam, where this man was sent to wash his eyes out, was the same pool that the priests would gather the symbolic water of salvation on the day of the Feast of Tabernacles and then pour it over the altar while they invoked the Lord to come and save them. And it was at that moment that Jesus stood up in the temple and said, I am the water of life. That same pool of Siloam, John now tells us, Siloam means sent, or the sent one. And so it's a dramatic example of how this blind man, Jesus, has taken the mud of the earth and a symbolic representation of the clay that man was made of him, recreated his eyes, sent him to this pool of Siloam to wash as in baptism and come out with new eyes of faith to see that Jesus is in fact the light of the world. That's what's happening in this story. But there's more going on to that as John is a tendency to doing these layering, layering theology and layering truth. And there's also the warning for that, that the Pharisees, the religious ruling elite are contrasted even though they, just as this blind man, are staring at the sun, and instead of giving them knowledge and sight, they are being blinded by the light because they are staring at him in unbelief. And so it presents to us a serious warning that we can check our hearts by. But even on top of that, another layer is that in the first century, while John was writing this gospel, the Christians were being thrown out of the synagogues. And we're being thrown out of community and losing everything that they had in the world. And so John is writing this story 
also to them to reassure them that even if the world takes away everything you have, they haven't taken away anything because what you have in Jesus is so much more than anything that the world can have to offer. And so it's also an encouragement for us. And so the big idea of this passage, what John, what Jesus wants us to know more than anything else, is this. That the more the world tries to intimidate us, the stronger our faith grows because Jesus is with us in our suffering. The more the world tries to intimidate us, the stronger our faith grows because Jesus is with us in our suffering. Let's break that down one little piece at a time. So the first part, the more the world tries to intimidate us. Let's look at John 18 through 23. So the Jews did not believe him that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. Now his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, that he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. The purpose of this first section of this, of this section is, the, is to let us know that the ruling religious elites had made it publicly known that to align with Jesus meant personal disaster. This idea of being put out of the synagogue, it's a, a Greek word that's the equivalent to, our, to the Latin word which is more familiar to us, excommunicato or excommunication. And so this is saying by being put out of the synagogue, what they're threatening is that he is going to be excommunicated from the synagogue of Israel. And that's a much bigger deal than it is today. Today, you can run off to another church that doesn't really know better and pretend that nothing happened. But back in that day, to be excommunicated from Israel wasn't just to be thrown out of the church or thrown out of the synagogue, but you were cut off socially. You were cut off economically. You were cut off in all sorts of ways that, that really meant personal, economic, spiritual uh, relational disaster for you as a person. So it was a big deal. It was a, it, was a, it was a real and serious threat. And obviously they had made it known that this was the case. Otherwise the parents wouldn't have been so backtracking, right? And the parents are given in this, uh, they're given, the parents are given here to show us as an example of the level of how much public pressure was being put out there to be of age meant to be 13 years old in one day in that culture. And so for his parents to say, he is of age, ask him, I think that means that it wasn't obvious he was of age. So he must have probably been 13, 15 year old boy. This man who had regained his sight was probably a 13 to 15 year old boy. I mean, if he was 25, they would have known he was of age, right? There had to be some question about it for his parents to point that out. And so let's put this into perspective. Why, why are these parents acting this way in the, in, the, in, the, in the interrogation that Jews are putting on them? There doesn't seem to be any rejoicing in their son's healing. 
They're just backing away as fast as they can. Put that into perspective. Caleb Johnson, a couple weeks ago, he had a football injury. Spine, the lower spine, there was a real possibility that he had some severe injury to to his lower spine. And praise God, the test came back. He wasn't injured, and we were all jubilant about it, right? Now imagine if there had been, imagine if Caleb had seriously been hurt. His spinal cord was severed. And he came, and we as a church prayed over him, and, and, and miraculously, in God's mercy, he healed him. How much more jubilation would we have been experiencing in that moment? How much jubilation would Jim and Rachel be experiencing in that moment? A lot. It would be at the forefront of their mind, right? And yet, when they come before the Pharisees, when they come before this interrogation, that's not what they're talking about. They're saying, yes, it's our son. Yes, he was born blind. How he was healed, we don't know. That's probably a lie. Who healed him, we don't know. That's probably a lie. They are not jubilant. They are backtracking. They are saying, we are going to stay out of this. Why? Pressure. They were afraid, terribly afraid, that they would lose their livelihood, their lives, their community, everything, if they came out in favor of this man who had healed their son. Can you imagine what kind of fear and pressure that might have been? And so finally, as a formal institutional intimidation, he's brought, they bring Caleb before the Council of Elders. 15-year-old boy in front of all these learned men, all these experts in theology, and they look him in the eye and they say, they say, give glory to God, meaning come clean and tell the truth. That's the same line that Moses or Joshua said to Achan. We talked about him a few weeks ago. Achan had stolen some things, buried in his tent. The elders of Israel came to him and said, give glory to God. It's the same words. In other words, come clean, tell the truth. And then the next thing is, we know that this man is a sinner. In other words, how'd you fake it, Caleb? How'd you fake it? Tell us the truth. Imagine how scary that would be. How much pressure and intimidation would have been on him? You know, what, what would you have done? What would you do? What would you do in that situation? Maybe a better question to ask is, how, how are you doing in those situations as they increasingly come up culturally, right? I mean, how are we doing as we sense the growing public pressure to conform Christianity to the prevailing cultural ideas about God. And really that's what's happening. It's not really a war of God, no God. There are very few atheists in the world. You've got to be extremely smart to fool yourself in that way. Most people have some semblance of an understanding of God that it's more in line with their own personal preferences. And, and, sedu- and, and seduction of subjective desire. And so what's happening is the church, as it always has been, is being pressured to fit into that mold of the prevailing ideas of who God is and what God's all about and what God would have us do, what holiness is, what right and wrong is, things like that. We're feeling feeling that pressure. Everybody's feeling that pressure. And let's be honest, shall we? The exclusive and outdated beliefs of the Christian church 
are not only ridiculous and worthy of ridicule to be held in a scientific age, but the more we go along, the more we come to realize how dangerous those beliefs are in an open and free society where tolerance is valued and people should be free to identify themselves. You people are dangerous. You don't believe it? Let me read you, read you this story. This is from Christianity Today. It's an article a few years ago written by an InterVarsity Fellowship people that got kicked off of Vanderbilt University. And the article is called The Wrong Kind of Christian. This is the main woman who was, uh, the main woman that was part of that ministry. She said this, I thought I was an acceptable kind of evangelical. I'm not a fundamentalist. My friends and I enjoy art, alcohol, cultural engagement. We avoid spiritual cliches and buzzwords. We value authenticity, study, racial reconciliation, and social and environmental justice. Being a Christian made me somewhat weird in my urban progressive context, but despite some clear differences, I held a lot in common with my unbelieving friends. We could disagree about truth, spirituality, and morality, and remain on the best of terms. And then, two years ago, the student organization I worked for at Vanderbilt got kicked off campus for being the wrong kind of Christians. For me, it was revolutionary, a reorientation of my place in the university and in culture. The line between good and evil was drawn by two issues, creedal belief and sexual expression. If religious groups required a set truth or limited sexual autonomy, they were bad, not just wrong, but evil, narrow-minded, and too dangerous to be tolerated on campus. It didn't matter to them if we were politically or racially diverse, if we cared about the environment or built habitat homes. There was a line in the sand, and we fell on the wrong side. And so, you know, as much as they tried to fit in, the administration of Vanderbilt University saw through it, that they in fact were dangerous to the ideals that the university was trying to promote, and they were right. You know, we're feeling it. It's two religions. It's one that's being driven by personal autonomy, the right of every person to freely identify themselves. And then there's another religion, another old religion. Both of these are very old religions. The other one is Christianity, where the God of creation has identified who we are. So the battle is who... Who's right? Who's wrong? And the, under, the idea, the idea that there is inherent truth that is able to be known in the created order. In other words, there is a creator God who has created things, and there's truth inherently present in those things. Is a threat people who would want to believe that there is no inherent truth in anything, that we are free to redefine reality in ourselves in any way 
we see fit, and we're feeling the pressure. Have you ever been like that person where you're with people, they don't know you're a Christian, and they're just in a conversation, they're just slamming Christianity, and you're like, uh, what am I going to say? Am I going to say anything? What should I say? They find out, you know, you just, I feel it, man, I just get that cringe, like, oh, man, they're going to find out I'm a Christian, they're going to think I'm an idiot. They're going to think I'm a bigot and a racist. It's totally not true, but that's totally what people are going to think. What do I say? What do I do about it? You know? It's a hard thing, you know? And let's, you know, quick sidebar. Sidebar. This is why it's so, so, so important for us as Christians to uphold the sexual ethics that we proclaim. Because if we go out in the world and the world knows us already, if we are trying to proclaim, one of the big mistakes of the church, and I believe in the last 40 years, is that we've tried to use political muscle to force unbelievers to live like Christians while Christians live like pagans. And the irony has not been lost on our critics. And so, you know, I had, there was a friend of ours who left the church, moved in with her boyfriend. It was a public thing, and we were trying to express to her this is dangerous. This is dangerous to you, first of all, but it's even more dangerous because this is presenting a picture to the world that Christians don't even believe what we say or what we, what we proclaim. And it makes people believe that, that, that it's all a bunch of nonsense and it's putting a stumbling block in the way of the gospel for people to come to faith in Christ and judging Jesus based on how we act. And I know, you know, we are imperfect, that we're going to falter in that, and that there's going to be struggle in it. But it's a reminder that we need to uphold the ethics that we promote or that we proclaim. And it's also, I think it's important to remember as we come into this, you know, these, these pressures, that on the one hand, it's always been like this in the church. Orthodox Christianity has always been unpopular. If you read tracts, articles from the Great Awakening in the 1760s, 1750s, would you just think everybody's Christian? If they you hear Jonathan Edwards, people of that else lamenting about the same thing, lamenting about the same kinds of things, but that Orthodox Christianity is mocked and ridiculed, and oh, how very few men uphold the great religion of our Lord, and things like that. So on the one hand, it's always been like that. And we also need to remember that this is not Syria. <laughs> and we're not against ISIS just yet. You know, there's this great article in the Babylon Bee the other day, the headline was was, uh, was American believer suffers brutal persecution in form of occasional ribbing from co-workers. You been there? But on the other hand, it's a real thing, and we all feel it. Nobody wants to have their reputation sullied in the world. It's it's it's, it's a bummer, you know. And who knows where, you know, we don't know where it's going. Culture may change, may go up, may go down. Things may get worse. Things may go better. We don't know. There's uncertainty with it as well. It just causes tension and fear, you know. And sometimes, sometimes you can sit down with people and have great conversations. And at the end of the day, they walk out going, wow, I really now have a better understanding of what Christians believe, why they believe it, how it is that your understanding of God is going to form how you believe about ethics and morals, and that there's some really some substance to what they believe. Sometimes you can have those conversations, and it's great. 
But we should be prepared to do that. Sometimes we can't. Sometimes in mob situations, especially, we just can't. So, you know, what do you do? What do we do? Well, let's see what this guy does. Now, let's see what happens next in the story. The more the world tries to intimidate us, point two, the stronger our faith grows. Let's look at John 9, 24 through 25. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. You know, the greatest thing about this story is, is this guy. He doesn't know much. He does not know much. I mean, he, well, he is at culturally, socioculturally, he is at the bottom of a very awful ladder in the ancient Near Eastern world. He's a blind man. Blind from birth. Obviously his family's not wealthy. He doesn't know much, but what he knows is enough to stump the minds of the most sophisticated religious critics of his day. This guy is not a theologian. He's never been trained to dismantle German higher criticism. Uh, He doesn't know how to dismantle liberal theology. He can't deconstruct narratives or give a compelling lecture on the importance of a priori metaphysical commitments to the development of ethics. He can't do any of that. All he knows is one simple thing, and he knows it experientially. I was blind, now I see. And he takes that into this situation and wins. Let's, Let's watch what he does. John gives us three main contrasts between the religious elite and this blind guy. First contrast are the arguments that they, that they throw up. The blind man, he's been blind since birth. There's a good chance to believe that he was born without eyes. Or at least eyes that were so deformed that he couldn't see at all. Right? Blind. And so he was a guy, you know, like I said, he's at the bottom of the ladder of a very low, awful Brutally, uh, brutal poverty. Um, there was no education. He was blind. He had no hope of ever having a wife or being married or having kids or having a family. His hope, the only hope he had was to be in total darkness and to grope for cha- for, 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 and to beg for a living as people passed by. That was it. That's what he had to look forward to every day. And so this guy new darkness. And when Jesus healed him, he knew light. He knew for a fact that he had been blind and now he had seen. And he knew, you know, he's, he kind of plays Captain Obvious in the middle of this, you know, this interrogation when he says to them, you know, this is amazing. This is a marvelous thing. What he's saying is, this is amazing that you, religious elite, theological experts, can't figure this one out. Because we know that if he was not from God, he could do nothing, much less something that's never been heard of before, ever, in the history of the world. That's a pretty good argument. And the argument of the religious elite, contrasting that, here it is, you ready? Basically, in a nutshell, of the 39 forbidden works on the Sabbath, one of them was kneading bread, 
therefore Jesus needed mud on the Sabbath, therefore violated the Sabbath, can't be from God. Look how many outs there are just in that. You know, maybe kneading just meant bread and mud wasn't included. Maybe it's possible that uh, that that acts of, of mercy and kindness were permissible on the Sabbath. Maybe what he's doing, maybe he, maybe he is the Messiah and he's doing prophetic works. The blind see. There's nobody who come, who, whose sight is restored in the Old Testament. It's all messianic prophecy. When the Messiah comes, the blind will see. Nobody else in the New Testament heals blindness. Only Jesus heals blindness. Real blindness. And this guy's been blind from birth. Look at all of those outs that these religious experts had to reconsider, but they don't. Why? It's because that, that argument, as silly as it is, protects their self-righteousness. And that's what they're really all about. And so it works. And they go with it. The second contrast or the attitudes that these guys come in, John presents, or this guy, the blind guy, he is humble and his humility leads him into knowledge and light. His, char- his speeches are characterized by, I don't know about that, but I do know this. I don't know about this, but I do know that. And he moves. There's, his trajectory is from utter, utter darkness that we see in the story and dramatically, literarily, literally, we see him moving from absolute, utter darkness to Jesus as a man, Jesus as a prophet, disciple of Jesus, calling Jesus Lord, and then eventually bowing down in worship to him as, as Jesus reveals himself to him. Contrary to that, we see the Pharisees who start with arrogance and, relig- and religious pride, and it leads them into Ignorance and utter, utter darkness. All their statements are characterized by, we know, we know this man's a sinner. He needed mud on the Sabbath. Need we say more? We are disciples of Moses. We know that Moses is right. We're disciples of Darwin. We know that Darwin is right. We're disciples of Derrida. We know that Derrida is right. Are you sure? Are you sure? And the last contrast are the outcomes. The blind man goes from utter blindness into knowledge and light and understanding. And the religious elite, we are clearly meant to see that their arrogant religious pride has plunged them into darkness. And the worst part is they don't even know it. They are clueless to the fact that they are blinded to religious truth, even though they're the experts and they know everything. You know, when their arguments start to fail... They resort to personal insults. To revile means to curse and call them names. Just as they do today when arguments fail, they call you names. But they don't mean anything. They say he was born in utter sin, harking back to the beginning of the chapter and that cultural belief that if you were blind or they had a disability, it had to be because of some kind of sin. 
So they're saying you were born in absolute abject sin, and you would teach us? It's one of those ironies of John. He's actually trying to teach them. But they're so arrogant, they won't listen. They're so committed to the truth that their interpretation of the facts are absolutely right, and there's no room to reconsider that they can't even hear him. You know, this is the, you know, the first guy in the Bible that is actively and informally persecuted for his faith. And we're supposed to see it as tragic. He's literally gone out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? I mean, there he was, blind. He was in abject poverty. He had no hope of an education, no hope of family. His relationships have been cut off. He was economically cut off from his people. He's given his sight back, and then all of a sudden, the first thing that happens to him because he stands up for Jesus is he's cut off. His economic prosperity is cut off. His family relationships are cut off. He doesn't have any prospect for getting married or having a family anymore. He's right back in earthly standards in the same position he was when he started. And any Jew reading the story, any first century person reading the story would be like, Oh, man. That's so sad. There's some hard lessons in here. There's a hard lesson, and that and that is that there's going to be people that are committed to self-righteousness. They are committed to the idea of determining who God is rather than who God has revealed himself to be in such a way that that rationality doesn't win the day. You need to remember that there, you know, to never underestimate the power of the human will to override the mind in religious affairs, especially. And and to be, and and just to understand that. I mean, it's heartbreaking. I really believed when I got into seminary that I would learn these arguments and I would be able to present them to people, and we'd walk, work through the logic, and we'd be like, oh, wow, Jesus, this is awesome. It hasn't worked out that way all the time. And that's a hard truth to understand. The other, the beautiful lesson out of this is that at the end of the day, the more they pressed this guy, the stronger his faith grew because he saw that the big difference here was hope. These guys were hoping in the law, but he had something totally different. Someone had given him eyes. He had no eyes in his head, and someone put eyes in his head. And all of a sudden, for the first time in his life, he saw life. Can you imagine what that would be like? Fifteen years old, never seen anything. Total darkness, and then you see the beauty of the created order. And everything in it. He had something better to hope in. He had something better to hope in. The one thing the world tries to do to us is it tries to get us to hope in something less than what God is offering. To distract us. To make us hope in something the Bible says we're disappointed. If we have learned anything from this political cycle, 
let it be that there is no hope in this world. Isn't it? It just, it's killing me watching people, even Christians, still trying to cling to, 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 to being saved by the political process. I'm not saying it's, the political process is bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying that that is not where our ultimate hope lies. And this season has just been it's brought out how deeply we as Christians are invested in this God and country civic religion that bears very little resemblance to Christianity. And if anything comes out of this political season, it's a severing of that. I pray that God will help us to see that and be more focused on what Christianity really is and in what our hope really lies in. So, at the end of the day, they kick this guy out. He's excommunicated. He's excommunicated. I think he's probably discouraged. He's frustrated. And so he goes to the temple to seek God, and to his amazement, God comes and finds him. So, first point. The more the world tries to intimidate us, the stronger our faith grows because Jesus is with us in our suffering. Look at verse 35 through 38. And Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe and he worshipped him. And he worshipped him. Let me play Captain Obvious for a minute here and point out that Jesus is the one who's initiating all the action in this story. Jesus comes and he finds this man by the side of the road. He comes to him and he heals him without even asking for his permission. Tells him what to do. And then later he comes and he finds him in the in temple. And then he reveals himself to him. He comes to him to be with him in his suffering. What he doesn't do is restore him to the synagogue. And I think that's something we need to look at for a second. He does not restore him. He does not rescind the excommunication order. And so it's very possible... We may lose things in the world. We may lose reputation. We may lose things because of our faith in Jesus. And it's no guarantee that Jesus is going to restore those things. But it's okay because rather than just restoring this old thing that he had that was passing away anyways, what he did was he gave him a whole new thing. He gave him something so much better. He revealed himself to this man in the temple. Do you... Do you realize that when Jesus comes to him in the temple and says, do you believe this is the first time that he's actually seen Jesus? He was blind. Jesus put mud on his eyes. He was still blind. He says, go to the pool and wash. Jesus takes off. Jesus is gone for this whole section of the story. There's almost a subplot in this altogether. Jesus comes, makes mud recreates eyes, disappears while the man struggles in life defending him and then as he ascends the temple Jesus meets him 
in the high place and reveals himself to him in glory and he opens his eyes and they worship him. This is the first time that he sees Jesus. He knows his voice. So he knows who he is, but it's the first time he sees him with his eyes. And notice his attitude now that he's being awash in these waves of supernatural knowledge that this this man, this man of God, this prophet, this Messiah, this deliverer saved him, not just physically, but it starts to dawn on him that he's being saved spiritually. Well, Jesus just shows up, asks him first question, no introduction, no small talk, comes in to the temple and looks at him first time he's seen Jesus and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this guy gets the answer right. He says, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? In other words, the the novel idea, how about you tell me who God is rather than me tell you? You who have done this miraculous work, you who have proven yourself evidentially and empirically, you who have shown us through the prophetic record that you are who you claim to be, you who have saved all of this for us in the Bible so that we would know who you are, how about you tell us who God is rather than me tell you who God is? Novel idea. But he's grateful, he's ready. And you look what Jesus says. (laughs) You know, the Pharisees keep coming. Tell us truly who you are. He kind of sidesteps. But with this guy and with the woman at the well, both of them approaching him in humility, he just says, I am. It's me. It is he. You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He reveals himself to this man. And in Jesus revealing himself, what's his response? He says, I believe, Lord. And he worships him. He worships him. That is honor to a divine person. Nothing less. Now, if there's any doubt about some of the belief that some people have had so far in John's gospel, people who are becoming to believe because of the miracles or because of what they're going to get from Jesus or whatever, this guy is legit. He gets it. He believes and he worships. Now, do you remember two weeks ago, the beginning of this chapter, what Jesus said about why this was all happening. The disciples are saying, why is this man born blind? Is it his sin? Is it his parents' sin? He says, no, no, it's none of that. This man is blind so that the works of God might be put on display in him. What have we just seen? We have seen that he was a condemned man condemned to live a life of suffering and darkness without hope and that Jesus came to him picked him out gave him the eyes of faith to see, healed him found him in the temple revealed himself to him as Lord and the man responded in worship 
filled his world with beauty and light. And he came to him in his suffering with something far better than anything that the world had to offer. Jesus' invitation to worship him was the promise and it was the connection to a better world. The promise in that if you worship Jesus, it means that Jesus has found you. If you are able to come here today and say, Lord, I believe and worship, it means that Jesus has found you, has given you eyes to see, has brought you out of spiritual darkness and into light. He has come with us in our suffering and also traded places with us. He's joined us in our suffering by going to the cross and paying penalty that our sins deserve so that he could bring this light to us. And if you know that, if you believe that, it means that this promise is for you and that you are now participating in eternal life. And it's a connection that the world become because Jesus' invitation to this man to worship is an invitation to put away the temporary things that this world is trying to fool you with and to what our confession says, to enjoy God forever. And this guy started it right there. Left it behind. I don't know what the rest of his story is. I don't know what happened to him in this life. But I know that he was worshiping Jesus right there. He was assigning ultimate worth to Jesus as the Lord of the universe And he was guaranteed an inheritance in something far better than anything the world has to offer us. And so if you know this to be true about you, if we know this to be true about us, then the world can press you all it wants. It's just going to strengthen your faith. Because you know what you have in Jesus. The world cannot take anything from you if they don't have anything you want. We have something better. And the more the world tries to intimidate us, the stronger our faith grows because Jesus is with us in our suffering and he will see us through it and into the world to come. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word to us and the blessing it is. Lord, we see the dual purpose of truth coursing through this passage, that truth not only enlightens, but it darkens those who stare at it in unbelief, Lord. And so we pray for any that are here, and for those in our family and for in our friends who don't know you, Lord, we pray that you would break their spiritual pride. We pray that your spirit would enlighten them to the truth, Lord. We pray that today would be the day of salvation for those that we know and love who don't know you. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be good witnesses in that. Lord, we pray that you would help us to, if we are losing things in the world, to not fight for them. Help us to not fight to regain our political power in the world. Help us to hold it with loose hands and to f- instead to focus on service and on love to the community and to each other. And let us, by your power, be purified and stand as an alternative to the world, Lord. We pray that you would beautify us and sanctify us through and through. 
Lord, we pray that you would help us to not be anxious or afraid as the world intimidates, but help us to grow strong in our faith and help us to be willing to risk our reputation for opportunities to share our faith with others so that your name might be glorified throughout all the earth, Lord. We pray your spirit would go before us. We pray that you would help us to be committed to truth as it actually is more than truth as we want it to be. Because you are a truth, Lord, and in your light do we see light. We love you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.